dear listeners, welcome back to Biopod, the official podcast of the School of Biological Sciences here at the University of Edinburgh. Hello, welcome to Biopod, the official podcast from the School of Biological Sciences here at the University of Edinburgh. I'm Gabrielle, and I'm beyond excited to welcome you to our newest episode. Today, get ready for a captivating discussion led by Severina, a brilliant PhD student at the University of Edinburgh. She'll be in conversation with none other than Manuel Brewer, Deputy Editor at Nature Portfolio in Communications Biology. Together, they're about to take us on a deep dive into the enthralling realm of scientific publishing. Ever found yourself pondering over a day in the life of an editor? Graving insights on breaking into this career and mastering the art of science communications? Well, Manuel's got you covered. Stick around for expert tips on crafting a paper that not only gets noticed, but sails through the publishing journey, hitting the three C's. Conciseness, clarity and conclusiveness. So without further ado, let's dive in with Severina and Manuel. Hello and welcome to Biopod. Today I'm talking to Manuel Bauer, who is a deputy editor of Communications Biology as part of the Nature Portfolio. Hello, Manuel. I'm really happy to have you here today. Hi, thanks for having me on the podcast. Lovely. So as I mentioned, you're the editor with Nature, basically, if we make it very broad. So could you tell us a bit about yourself first and then about the role you're partaking in? Yes. So I am originally from Germany and did my undergrad there with a year abroad in the US at the University of California, Davis, and then did my PhD in France, followed by a postdoc in the lovely city of Edinburgh that some of your listeners might be familiar with for for about six years. And then in 2016, I uh, changed gears and became a features and reviews editor at Journal of Cell Science, followed by a deputy editorial manager position at the FEPS Journal, and for the last two years, I've been with Springer Nature. So in the, as you said, the Nature Portfolio at Communications Biology, a fully open access title. That's so interesting. So you mentioned the steps that led towards that position you're taking now. But could you tell a bit more in detail what you do as an editor from day to day? Yeah, so that's that's also uh, almost a tricky question to answer because I think it varies depending on your role, um, exact specification as an editor. So I'm, I'm now a deputy editor, so I joined Communications Biology as a senior editor. And at Springer Nature for, you know, joint titles such as, well, Nature itself or Nature Communications, there's a, an associate editor or a senior editor working with the manuscript, working with the authors. So that is um, the day-to-day life is very much revolving around assessing manuscripts and getting manuscripts out for peer review, getting reports back and seeing a manuscript through to acceptance. Um, as a deputy editor now, I have uh, several other roles that are linked to managing, line managing other editors in the team and overseeing some aspects to journal development and strategy. And we have a large editorial board, which is specific to the communications title. So communications biology has a collaborative model where in-house editors such as myself work with academic editors who also handle manuscripts. So um, I'm also overseeing recruitment and generally the board here. So it's, it's quite varied as a role at the moment, which I really like. That sounds so interesting. So there's no day-to-day monotony in your work as it seems. 
Yeah, it is, of course. Um, and that's something, of course, for people to consider going into editing. You, you leave the bench. So, you know, it's less of a manufacturing role, should I say, if you do wet lab work, you know, might be used to. I always enjoyed having all these very different aspects of being in a lab, you know, being under the mic at the microscope, um, assembling blots. So, you know, you, you do very different things with your hands. Uh, that falls flat as an editor. You're, you're going to be a laptop person. Um, that is quite monotonous. So built in a, a walk during lunchtime or other activities. Uh, but apart from that, when it comes to the actual tasks, I, I do find it rather varied. The heavy, heavy emphasis is certainly on the, on the manuscripts, especially if you are handling research articles. But as I was saying earlier, you can uh, also, of course, be um, a reviews editor, for example, which is my first role at Journal of Cell Science. And there, I, I did travel quite a lot to international conferences throughout the year and would commission review articles and also do something that's called developmental editing in the fields, uh, which means any review that we commissioned that came to us, we would, alongside with the peer review reports, we would also make a lot of suggestions to the author. So you go line by line through a manuscript and make suggestions, which you wouldn't do for a research article. So, you know, th there's a lot of variety in, in the job. That's more varied than I actually anticipated, which <laughs> is very interesting. Yeah, you have to, you have to, in a way, you have to, know exactly what you're applying for things can be very different uh, production editors in many in many publishers and many journals are looking as the name may suggest looking to to see the manuscript through and and really look at the, the formatting and looking at all editorial policies are followed copy editors is a classic example where it's really down to a word by word checking for the grammar checking for the language so it's a very specific profile, yeah, and you have to be you know, very firm on, on, on the English language. Um, whereas a reviews editor, as I just said, this is about getting review articles and, and knowing the field and, and getting interactions, a lot of interactions with authors and with researchers eventually. I would think you have to have some social aspect or like to be social when it comes to this role. Whereas as a research article editor, you don't have that much interaction with authors other than via email or via, you know, online interaction, but not so much at conferences. You will go to conferences, but it is a bit less, but, you know, clearly sort of a different profile you need for, for these uh, different jobs. This is a very good insight for someone, especially who's considering getting into publishing as an industry, because it's so varied, so interesting. And why did you end up going into publishing? Because you spent quite a chunk of your career in like proper wet lab academia. So what made you turn into publishing? I think my answer is simple. I just saw the opportunity and then decided to go for it. It seems a bit funny having been a senior postdoc, I, I would say. Um, so I was also looking into continuing my research and I had a research plan written. Um, I was applying to independent fellowships, independent sort of job positions at that stage. I think what's different with me is that I was always very interested in publishing and just the journal landscape in academia, but also generally newspapers. So as an undergrad back in Germany, the money for rent and everything came from working part-time as a sports writer, journalist, you know, every week, basically every weekend I would, I would I work for a local newspaper. So I think there's always an interest in, yeah, publishing, you know, getting, getting the news out. And um, I think that just always sat with me um, and never left me. And it's actually a funny story because, you know, there's a job advertisement that Ken Seven, a PI at the, at the Wellcome Trust, sent around. And they're like, that's a really nice journal. And I, I had published myself in Journal of Cell Science. So it ticked all the boxes. I was like, well, this is interesting. Let's have a look. And I you know, had a look and thought about it and then just went for it and got the job quite quickly and then never looked back. 
um, yeah, that was the story how I how I switched gears. Lovely. That sounds like such a not luck-filled story, but a very fortunate story by getting all the right nudges at the right time. That's great. And I know from speaking to you before is that you did something related to press and science publication while you were in the University of Edinburgh. Could you tell about that? Of course, yeah, that's that's true. And it's uh, I think it's also nicely demonstrating that I was always interested in these things. So throughout my, my time as a postdoc, we had a group of volunteers called Press Gang at the School of Biological Science. And, um, you know, people are still there, of course. There were a lot of PhDs and postdocs who now went on over time. And I think, sadly, sort of the activity has sort of ceased over, over the COVID years. Um, but before that, it was a group who would get together on a sort of every six to eight weeks and knock at doors of group leaders and say, do you have anything ready for publication or it's just under revision, you know, anything that you feel this is coming out in the next three months. And we would serve as a, as a liaison between the university's press office and the PI or the, the research group or the, the authors of a paper to really strike the right, hit the right tone here for a press release. Because of course, the university's press releases is, is looking for, you know, big discoveries and there's only so much space they can give for the papers that come out. But at the same time, maybe an, a scientific abstract is a bit too niche. So, you know, we, we're trying to sort of find the balance between the needs of the press office and the needs of the authors. And yeah, we really increased, I think we, we looked at this over the years, we increased the output that the press office gave or the output that came from the School of Biological Science by two or threefold. So it, it really paid off. And um, you also get to read and learn about a lot of science that's going on. And we all know as a, as a PhD or as a postdoc, you're head down in your project, even if you're a very curious person, you're not going to necessarily know what's going on in the you know, department next door where it's, it's a slightly different uh, field. So we all learn a lot, I guess, about the, the, the field that is that are covered by a school of biological science. I would say this is not very far apart from what we're doing here at Biopod, which is very nice. Exactly. Yeah. But I don't think it's actually completely dead, let's say now, because I still looked into it a bit and there's still something happening. That's great to hear. That's good to hear. Yeah. But I think that this is a very interesting and very important thing because the science communication aspect of translating the science from the scientific terms into more layman terms is a very important part of any yeah. scientist. Yeah. I would make it sound like there's a sort of a total career plan, which I clearly didn't have. <laughs> I shall make that clear. Um, but it really helps if you, if you are interested in science communication, and it might be, you know, a medical writer, but also, you know, in any editorial role, an industry role, where you also have to communicate quite differently compared to academia. Picking up such an activity is not only fun, but it's also very useful. So I think everybody involved at the time really enjoyed this over the years. And it's, it's not like it's taking hours and hours every week. You know, it's, we, we got together and it's a couple of emails, meeting maybe the team around a publication, having a chat with them. It's, it's also nice for networking. So if you are inclined to, to do these kind of things, really try to get in touch or set up such a volunteer group because it's really fun. It's very re-encouraging to hear that there are more pathways than just the traditional industry and traditional academia way. So would you say this is one of the advices you would give to students or postdocs if they want to change and shift gears somewhat to partake in these activities or anything else? Maybe you have some other suggestions. 
Yeah, so I think it's meant to sound encouraging, but there's so many ways in which you can arrive to, in, in my case, an editorial position. So, you know, I would recommend doing, you know, a podcast, getting involved in any sort of newsletter, anything that needs digestion of scientific content, where you may just have one or two sentences to distill a message. This is always important if you're an editor or if you're in, in any kind of line of work that resembles this. But it's not a must. It's a plus. But realistically, you know, I, I think it would sound a bit pompous to say, well, I got hired because of this. I think if you're a PhD student and you're looking to change in, into publishing at the interview stage, it's it's about being able to grasp the novelty, grasp the advantage of a paper, if it's if it's a research article, for example, and, you know, being able to synthesize and summarize the paper quickly and uh, give some feedback on not necessarily the technical details, but sort of how this sits in with maybe with the literature, if you're given time to research on the literature. So it's always about these quick assessments. And I think that's something that any PhD student, any postdoc, really anyone in academic research does on a day-to-day -day basis, because you read a lot, you look at a lot of data, and you always have to extract the information that is required for you or for others to, you know, to understand what you're doing. So I think that's the main skill, actually, that you should train or should be interested in developing. Um, and everything around really helps. Doing, doing these extra activities helps. Going to seminars, going to talks where yeah, it feels a bit out of a comfort zone. I haven't had lunch. It's far down the corridor. Uh, I have to still set up these experiments. But, you know, it's, 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 it's tough on a weekly basis to go to these extra seminars that maybe not be exactly what you're doing. But give yourself a push and go there because there's always something new to learn. And that helps you in really anything, whether it's an academic career or something that, you know, translates into some, something different later. So you would say branch out, basically. Yeah, sure. Keep really an open mind and an open eye around the things that are happening besides your project and besides the projects in your lab. It will help your own research, I would say, because you see other, you know, other methods and other ways of thinking, really, because even in, in biology, if we're talking about School of Biological Science, it's, you know, the fields are vastly different. You know, a paleobiologist talking to a structural biologist that it couldn't be probably further apart or, you know, maybe I should have given a better example, but you, you see my point. So there's always something to, to, be, to be learned from, from just looking around. And um, this, this is all transferable skills at, at the end of the day. This is very interesting because we have this running joke in our lab that one colleague presented a paper during a journal club about birds migration, whereas we're working on POMB epigenetics. So it's so far apart, but it's still biology. So that's a good advice. Thank you for that. We should keep that in mind. I, I definitely agree. And if you're working for, you know, one day, if you're working for communications biology, this is a daily thing as, a, as an editor, because we publish really broadly in the biological science. So you might get a paper, although we have all our, uh, you know, key expertise, the things we were trained in previously, but we might get a cognitive neuroscience paper or um, a bird migration paper or something that is classic cell biology. So it might be very relevant uh, as an editor. And speaking about that, you get a lot of different papers in communication biology and other sectors of the nature portfolio. How do you tackle that? Because it's so different. I imagine you need some expertise to be able to understand the papers. So how do you process that vastly different data and different research subjects? Yeah, that's, a, of course, a good question. So, so I think, of course, in our journal, we rely on, on our board. So our board members are really experts in the field, in the, in the subfields we're covering. So they would also, of course, handle a lot of the manuscripts. But in the case of 
an in-house editor, a professional editor handling the manuscript. Yeah. And in the vast majority of cases, you do get something which you are somewhat familiar with. It might not have been your PhD project, but you are familiar with research or at least the methods. But an important aspect, and you know, I think that's also sometimes misunderstanding about what an editor does. Um, we're not there to judge the technical details of, of a paper. That's what the peer review process is for. So we get the experts to cover the expertise of the manuscript, different methods, and they might be, of course, very varied in the manuscript. And nowadays, we're very interdisciplinary and, and you know, large teams involved. So this is what's covered with the reviewers. But our job is to, well, I don't want to say a judge, but to be with the editorial hat on, making an initial decision on the advance and the novelty, and not necessarily the, the impact or the future glamour factor of a, of a paper. That is really not something we look at um, on, on a day-to-day -day basis. It's about what has been published before, um, how does this fit into the field? Um, and, and what's important to know as well, we never take or make decisions by ourselves. The academic editors are involved, the board is involved, we, we talk to them. But it's also true for manuscripts that are just handled by professional editors. We discuss this among ourselves in the team and everybody has a, a sort of a slightly different view maybe on it and when we get it together to a decision on these manuscripts. So it's really about the advance that this manuscript provides. And I think that's something that you can provide as an editor, the sort of the, the assessment on this level and anything, everything else when it comes to the details of the paper that is left to the referees, as I was saying. So you mentioned academic editor twice now, and I'm a bit confused. What is the difference between the academic editor and let's say the peer review, the like the first reviewer or something like that? Because it sounds fairly similar in my mind, at least. It does. And it's, yeah, I'm glad you asked because um, I think there's also sometimes even a confusion over, over these different titles, sometimes also across journals. The same title means different things. Um, and I was saying earlier, there's production editors, there's executive editors, there's managing editors. It's all a bit, I think, generally speaking, you can look at editors being full-time office editors, professional editors like myself, if you want to if you want to call them like that. So I have no role in active uh, research at the bench, whereas academic editors are, in our case, are, you know, a big part of, of the journal, of our board. And in, in many journals, uh, especially journals who are based on a society, so, so lean journals that came out of um, societies, uh, are mainly run by academic editors. So, you know, this means that it's a side job or it's a, it's a side activity they do apart from their teaching, apart from their faculty uh, roles and their research, certainly. They take on the job as an editor and a referee who um, looks at the technical expertise of a manuscript. So they would be brought in by any of these editors to only act as a reviewer. So I think an editor hat, as I always like to call it, compared to a referee hat is a very different hat, a very different role you have in the entire process of getting a manuscript through to acceptance. I see. Okay, that explains a lot. And just out of curiosity, how many of these academic editors are there in general? Because I never met anyone, at least in my building of Swan. Well, uh, total numbers, I don't know, tens of thousands. Um, I think a fair, fair bit of the academic publishing world is run by these academic editors who are, you know, the sort of lifeblood of publishing because they, um, you know, in, as I was saying, in many cases, they run an entire journal. So these journals that are based on academic editors, they are often operating with a small in-house editorial team, so maybe a managing editor, as I was you know, mentioning this title before, to run the essential processes that are required to organize the journal and develop the journal. But the actual manuscript handling is really done by academia. 
we have this mixed collaborative model, which I find really great and which attracted me in the first place to the journal. But yes, other titles and an example, of course, is our sister journal, Nature Communications, doesn't have an academic board. So it's really in-house professional editors who uh, make the decisions on the manuscripts and handle the peer review process. But now that you know it, you know, have a look at the, the journals you're constantly reading. You will see that on the list of the board or the editors, as they're sometimes just called, you will see whether they're active in research because, you know, their bio on the webpage would tell you whether they have a research group somewhere. I'm definitely going to look this up. It's <laughs> so interesting. I knew scientists wear a lot of hats, but I never knew they wear the publishing hat as well. So that's yes. fascinating. And that kind of leads us nicely into the publishing world. So as working in this part of academia, let's say, you spend quite a lot of time on this. And do you have any golden rules or like magical ratios that would help one get their paper accepted or like the most mistakes people do when submitting papers for publishing? Well, I guess if I had a magic bullet or magic solution, you know, your podcast downloads would, uh, would skyrocket <laughs> if I were to reveal this now. Um, unfortunately, of course, there's no, there's no sort of magic recipe to get you. It's certainly not accepted, you know, even out for review is a big step. But in all seriousness, of course, there are a lot of steps you can, you can do while preparing your manuscript. Um, to increase your chances that, you know, that it's accepted as the ultimate outcome, but that it's that the value of the manuscript and the experiments and the conclusions you want to bring forward are clearly seen, because that's what it's about. You want this to be seen by the editor. You want this to be seen by the reviewers who, you know, we just talked about this academic, everybody's busy. Everybody has several, wears several hats, going back to the hats. Everybody has, you know, lots of duties to, to sort of juggle. And, and when you so much time to sell, although I'm always a bit careful with this wording, sell your story and these, these, these wordings, but you only have so much time to convince somebody that this is a great paper. So don't drown it in, you know, waffling on and having a, a huge introduction, a huge discussion. I think the, you know, the cover letter is, is important. There's a slight debate in the field whether editors look at this or not. Um, many I know who look at this because it's the opportunity to put your story in the context, put your paper in context. So it shouldn't just be a rehash of the abstract. You can, in the cover letter, you can certainly say what is different from other publications that the editors will quickly find when benchmarking, when looking at the paper, say, well, you know, these groups have shown this, but we clearly show this here and it's a major step forward. And that's where we love our paper. So that's your opportunity. Some people like to include a graphical abstract. A lot of minds work in that way. You know, having something graphical is, is, is can be really helpful. But also then coming to the, to the paper itself, make it accessible. Maybe give your paper when you prepare it, not only to your lab, but have some colleague from, from the institute or even from a different institute read over it. Do they understand it? Do they see the main messages? Not only from the text, but also are the figures clear? You've rewritten, you've reorganized your figures so many times that you, it's very obvious to you, but you can't assume that even somebody who is in your subfield immediately sees the, the take-home message. So be very clear about the take-home messages in the abstract. Maybe include a guiding paragraph at the end of the introduction to you know, highlight the work you propose here, the, the results you propose here. And also continue in the writing style in the, in the, in the results session. Do you um, propose what you're doing and show how you've addressed this and what the outcome is? You know? um, subheadings can also be very clear. Don't just describe the experiment, but describe the outcome, describe the results. So yeah, I guess these are kind of tricks to write a good paper. And I think that just increases your chance for your data to be seen in the right way, in the way you want it to be seen. You know, and I'm sure you have a great paper. So if you do all these steps, then I think you have an increased chance to be accepted. 
That sounds like a very valid suggestion. I wrote down concise, clear, and conclusive. The three C's. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the benchmark of proper academic writing, I would say. And I definitely agree. And I definitely struggle with all of them. (laughs) (laughs) So talking about these, I think this is a very interesting process as, as a whole when you submit a paper for publishing. So can you briefly mention just the steps a paper usually goes through before publishing? Of course. There's variation among among journals, among publishers, but uh, generally speaking, the manuscript will be checked for completion, uh, quality checks, you might call it. You know, if is the language okay? Is is nothing omitted? We, you know, sometimes you do get papers where there's no figures. Authors forgot to submit the figures. It happens. You might not think this, but it does happen. Or you know, something else, uh, something fundamental is is missing. So these initial checks uh, that you know take maybe a day or two, depending on who's looking at it. Um, depending on also the size of the journal, how many people work there, to be you know completely transparent. Um, and the next step is it goes to a handling editor as I was using these terms, so somebody who's in charge, who is sort of taking your manuscript and leading it through the process. And um, they will evaluate the paper, ideally in, you know, in a couple of days. This might also then go to a board member, in, depending on their model. As I was saying earlier, you know, you maybe there's, a, there's an academic board or academic editors. And, and they will look whether this is suitable for the journal. Is it in scope? Of course, for us, communications biology, very broad scope. In many cases, this is in the scope, but if you have a very specific journal that is dealing with, you know, let's say epigenetics, you might find that, well, actually, it's not such a good fit for us and that the editors might decide to return this. So these are the sort of initial considerations. And if it fits within the scope and it proposes something novel, that it works with the editorial bar. Of course, the editorial bar between nature or cell and other journals, <laughs> you know, not naming too many of them now. Um, is very different because it's, it can be highly selective or or less so. So in that case, it might not be the bar and, and therefore be rejected. So that would be an editorial rejection you would receive, hopefully without a long wait, of course. That's always the first aim for us as editors to be really quick with the decisions um, because we all know we've been, we've been uh, authors ourselves. It can be quite painful, especially when you're at the end of your PhD project or generally, you know, you just want to have news on, on, on your paper, of course, because it can be quite exciting and also nerve-wracking. Um, but yeah, if, if it's good news and we want to send this out, then peer reviewers are, are found. So we reach out, we, we identify suitable candidates who have the relevant expertise for your paper, who cover all expertise that is needed for this paper. Um, and then we hopefully get the reports back. And that is something that, of course, can take time. Uh, everybody, again, everybody's busy. And uh, ideally, we would get the reports back in three to four weeks and then return a decision. So look at the reports and make a, an assessment of the overall feedback we got from the referees. And it's not a way of counting. We're not counting votes. We're not taking a comment that, you know, let's say this is, or oh, this is not so novel or this is not really interesting to me. We don't take this as a rule to then decide, uh, okay, this should be a rejection. So that's not how it's done. It's really about weighing the expertise that every referee brings in and the major concerns they have or may not have um, to make an editorial decision. And then you get your revised decision, hopefully. Say these are the experiments. And at Communications Biology, we really try to customize every decision letter and put forward from an editorial side to say, these are the reports, but these are actually the key experiments we would like you to do. So if you do them, we would happily return them to the referees when you come back to us. If you don't do them, then it might be a hard sell to the referee. So this is the guidance we provide as well. And I think that's quite helpful to authors to know what they're up to and not have a bad surprise by the editor to say, well, you haven't done these, so we're not going to send this out. You know, we also would leave a comment whether something is out of scope because 
you know, if you have a paper and somebody asks an entire new mouse model to validate your findings, talking again about you know, sort of biology, wet lab biology, this might be very much out of scope for your for the journal, but also for the for the paper. So we would tell you that. So that you know, there's guidance there, and then hopefully the journey is is a positive one. You know, you revise it, and then you get accepted. <laughs> Sounds like a lot of steps. But a very interesting thing I heard was that you also review the referee reviews. So you kind of have double the review process as an editor, or am I mistaken? I mean, I guess you can call it review. You know, you really assess what they've fed back to you in the comments. But I was just trying to make the point that if one report is really negative, it's not a vote that we look at when we get, for example, three reports. I don't think it's an editor's job to just um, do sort of thumbs up, thumbs down, a quick assessment. It is about reading reports and see how much value they brought and how much they engaged with the paper. So if it's a, if it's a great um, report that really engaged with the paper and from someone who has really has the expertise to judge the technical aspects, then of course I weigh this as an important voice in the decision. If somebody gives a really short report is quite dismissive, um, maybe less so. Because, you know, it's just uh, then maybe less fair to the author to say, well, you know, somebody gave a short report, wasn't really happy, so sorry, we reject this. So it's really about finding the balance between um, the input from the referees and giving an overall decision that is fair to the authors. I see. So the lore of the reviewer, too, is <laughs> not an actual thing then. Yeah, I don't know. I often think that uh, this is um, historically, this is, you know, it's quite often said that referee or reviewer three is sort of the mean one. But I think that's it might be also sort of an artifact of the submission system. So when referees return their report, they're automatically labeled by the time they returned it. So the first one is referee one. So the late one or the one that maybe needed some extra time, you know, there might be reasons for it. They might be very unhappy with the paper. So that's why they're, they're the grumpy referee three or they were in a rush to, to, to get this, you know, after much delay to get this finally back to you. So maybe this, um, this is why this is sort of the, the numbers associated with uh, the more negative reports. <laughs> Every myth is based in part of the reality. So this explains a lot about that particular meme floating around. I think around. so, yeah. <laughs> and just out of curiosity again, how many manuscripts do you get per day that need to, you need to send out for this process? Oh, this, of course, varies a lot between journals. I think it's a fair bit of your day when you're, in our example, at Communications Biology or sort of Springer Nature journals. Um, you know, it can be several manuscripts a day. It can be, you know, 20 a week you have to assess. It's difficult to give exact numbers because it really varies. But of course, as you see by the number of articles that are published, which you can check for your preferred journal, you know, you can estimate how many submissions there are. You know, some, some journals get um, 15,000 submissions a year, some get 4,000. I think Communications Biology now is one of the bigger journals. We do get in the ballpark of, of 4,000 submissions a year. So yeah, we're a larger editorial team. There's, we're sort of between 10 and 12 people um, look at, looking at these manuscripts together with the board again. Um, but yeah, there's a, you know, that's a fair amount of uh, manuscripts coming our way. Very interesting. And it Thinking back to the variety of papers you're getting, you should be well-versed in a lot of different subjects now. I hope so. <laughs> and now moving along to a bit more, I wouldn't say controversial questions, but harder questions probably. So you've been working in publishing for a while now, and what are the main challenges you faced in the field in general, not necessarily in your position? 
Oh, that's um, yeah, a question we could uh, we could you know spend a lot of time on. Um, I think the publishing last landscape, of course, has changed profoundly in the last. So I've been an editor of seven years, but and it has massively changed in that time. But it has also changed before. You know, we've seen the advent that is now. Yeah, 20, 15, 10 years ago of, of really um, open access, full open access, uh, immediate access to um, to research, taking yeah, taking publishing by storm. Uh, when I when I joined as an um, as an editor, preprints weren't really a thing. It was just developing. Of course, they were always a thing in physics, but in biology, or or, or you know, biological med, biomedical science, it wasn't so much of a thing. Now it is, luckily, and. Um, Many, if not all, journals I'm aware of fully support this. Um, but this is, as I was saying, a process of the last years. So I think today the, the challenges are to make research uh, or publishing or, or just access to, to, to research in inclusive. Uh, I think there is a extreme divide between um, the the and not necessarily talking about countries, but you know the rich institutes or the, the places with a lot of funding, a lot of money, um, and those who don't have access to this, or inevitably they don't have access to the same um, to the same research, to the same resources. So, uh, and I think that is always equally an issue in in publishing. So this is of part of the scientific paywall that we're experiencing in science, right? That is one of the bigger problems, especially considering with certain journals or certain publishing areas, that this is a persistent problem. Do you see a way out of this? <laughs> Again, the million dollar question. Yeah, I think open access publishing has done great things. And I think it was the inevitable thing to happen in, in publishing back from a subscription, a pure subscription based model. And now I think any author, you have a lot of journals you can choose from to publish open access. In, and then of course there are nuances, there's different models where there's maybe an embargo of six months or it's immediate open access, gold open access, um, these different options. One thing of course that has come along with the advent of open access publishing is we now have you know predatory journals because the incentive is there for somebody with maybe other motives than publishing the best science is to publish papers because open access comes with an author, an article processing charge. So the authors have to pay essentially for this. But before that, it was hidden in a subscription agreement with the library of, of the university you were, you were attached to. So this has surfaced or the value or the transaction and the money has surfaced in, uh, out of this open access movement. So, and that, of course, creates then an incentive to be dishonest, as we've seen with predatory journals who want to take the fee and publish no matter what you send them, it goes out. So, you know, then the landscape of journals has also changed in this way. So I do think to answer your question... I think something that is currently in the making with the transition, so many journals, of course, have to transition now. It's mandated by their funders or by funders who have adhered to something like Plan S, um, you know, which is a big initiative to, to look at open access or enable open access to publicly funded research. They have to transition, so they have to offer the open access option. So coming out of this, there's been debates and discussions and, and agreements with between publishers and institutions, a group of universities or research institutes like, you know, Max Planck, for example, to agree on a publish and read or read and publish agreement. So, and this takes away this price tag from the authors because it's an estimation of how many papers are published and read at this institution. And there's a, a flat rate or a flat price that is paid per year 
to the publisher by that institution. And the author can read everything as open access, but also publish for free. So it's it's sort of a Netflix-like, or I don't know, it's, a subs- it's, it's back to a subscription model in a way, but it doesn't go through the library, but it goes to individual agreements. And that's something that we've been seeing for the last five years being negotiated. And I'm very much a fan of that because I think the controversy you mentioned initially stems from the fact that now academics, you know, having tight budgets for their research to pay uh, staff, they see they have an amount or a number attached to publishing in journal X or Y, you know, and this has created controversy and this has created heated debates around whether this is justified or not. But I think this read and publish agreements take this away again. So we have a really database approach of, okay, this institute, this, this group of universities, they're publishing that many articles and they're having that many downloads. So let's agree on a price and then no author or no lab group or team have to look at these numbers. And, you know, it's just they can publish their research and do what they prefer the most is just to get their data out and get their papers out. That sounds really, really good way of doing it. I didn't hear about that. This is fascinating. But you mentioned individual agreements between, is it the journal and the institution, like a singular journal or like a pack of journals, like Nature, Springer, Portfolio? Yes. So this is a very prominent example is the project deal that was agreed with German universities and Wiley a couple of years back. So it's a publisher, a publishing group. And for the smaller publishers, there's those consortia. So they group themselves together. And they would negotiate this with the university or, you know, it can get quite complicated. I'm not a publisher where I would deal with these things, but, you know, they, um, these are the two parties, a university or a group of universities and a publisher to negotiate these deals. And yeah, I think it, it's a good way forward. And do you think this is a possibility of doing this country-based or doing it like the EU level or, I don't know, some scientific consortium between different institutions around the world? Which is the way to go here, in your opinion? Well, what we've seen so far is that it's very much country-based um, because it can become quite complex in terms of the administration. And I was in, in June, I was, I was doing lab visits. There's something else an editor does. You, you go to a lab and uh, you know, talk about publishing, but certainly also um, hear about the research that's done at the Institute. Um, and there I had also discussions with some of the, the group leaders there and the head of the Institute about how this is then linked to their funding, you know, because in France, for example, there's the CNRS, which is, you know, the sort of the government body that distributes the funding. So, you know, UK has um, CIUK or, you know, there's, well, of course, the Wellcome Trust itself, but there's lots of different funding bodies who have quite different roles. It's more of a private, you know, charity-based or it's a government-based so it's not a blanket approach and a sort of a pan-European approach, well, especially also now with the UK being <laughs> sort of out or maybe in again when it comes to Horizon 2020, but it's difficult. Yeah, I guess I digress now, but you know, it becomes sort of a very complicated debate around several layers of bureaucracy to organize how funding flows and how these sort of major deals are organized. Yeah, but that's sort of for publishers to decide how this is uh, going forward in the next years. That sounds like a very probable solution to this criticism that's floating around in the academic world. So hopefully it works. And one other thing that people are kind of questioning nowadays, at least from what I heard, is the process of the reviewers, choosing a reviewers, because reviewers are basically gifting their time to review papers. And of course, this is a communal thing and everybody does it. But do you think from a publisher's standpoint, from the company's, let's say, standpoint, 
Is it in the cards that there will be some sort of a barter system that you get points if you review some papers and then you get a discount as a university or as a country or something like in those terms? Is it possible? Yes, I mean, there's some that is absolutely the case. And that's something I can assure that is debated or discussed actively in editorial and teams and across journal portfolios. This is something that we hear as a feedback from the community and we're as editors, very keen to implement some reward system. Of course, we have measures that maybe we're quicker as, a, as an independent journal, we're quicker to, to set up, like highlight our referee of the month. We do this every month, you know, sort of a recognition. But yeah, going further and going maybe, uh, as you say, like some, you know, uh, rebate you get from uh, reviewing for a certain publisher or for a certain group of journals. That is something that some publishers have already are already implementing and some are debating. So, but it certainly is, we are seeing progress there. It may be at the moment behind the scenes, but it's not something that the publishers are oblivious to. You know, it's quite the opposite. So this is being implemented. That's very good to hear. That's the that the scientific review process is also being thought about again. Yeah, that's great. This was genuinely very interesting, Manuel. Thank you very much. And to end on a very positive note, can you say something and wish something to your alma mater students now in the University of Edinburgh? Well, that might be the most difficult question. Um, I, I really enjoyed my time in Edinburgh. And, you know, when you were sort of in that, you know, southern part of, of Edinburgh, have a look onto the hills, um, enjoy the, the wind sweeping around the labs. Um, I think Edinburgh is a, is a really nice place and uh, with great research. So you get a really good deal. So make the, the most of it, you know, spend time needed in the lab, but also go out, you know, for a little hike on the Monroe or just around Edinburgh. So um I look back at these years as, as a really great time, enjoying both the city, but also um, yeah, the time in the lab there. And I think that's how it should be for any you know student or, or postdoc. That is a very great advice. And keeping your mental state with the outside, the windy outside of Edinburgh is lovely. Excellent. I mean, nothing beats you know horizontal rain uh, at you know <laughs> and uh, dark skies at two p.m. on a Saturday. So yeah, definitely. This was lovely, Manuel. Thank you very much again for chatting with us. Thank you. Pleasure. And there you have it, Explorer of Biology. A huge thank you to our guests, Severina and Manuel, for taking us on this enlightening journey through the world of scientific publishing. If you found this episode engaging, please don't forget to subscribe for more captivating discussions on Biopod on whichever platform you use and to follow us on our social media channels, such as Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, where you can find us as Biopod Edinburgh. Otherwise, have a wonderful day, stay curious, and hope to see you very soon, exploring the wonders of the biological world. Until next time!